Good morning from the Financial Times. Today is Monday, January 31st, and this is your FT News Briefing. The head of the world's biggest sovereign wealth fund is betting that inflation will be sticking around, and earnings season has revealed some real winners and losers from the supply chain crisis. Plus, as tension mounts between Russia and the West, we'll take you to a city on the front line of the conflict. It's an uneasy part of Ukraine that's very much on edge. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need to start your day. Economists are divided over whether inflation is temporary or permanent, but the head of the world's largest sovereign wealth fund thinks inflation could become long-lasting. Nikolai Tangen runs Norway's $1.3 trillion oil fund. He told the Financial Times that permanent inflation means investors face years of low returns. Inflation in the biggest economies is now at its highest level in decades. Tangen said he thought inflation could be stronger than what's generally expected. He points to high demand, the number of people leaving the workforce, and lingering disruption in supply chains. Now, speaking of supply chain issues, they're playing a starring role in the current earnings season in the U.S. Many companies complained of shortages, delays, and spiking costs. Some companies have managed to navigate the disruption, others not so much. Our U.S. business editor, Andrew Edgecliffe-Johnson, starts with the winners. Well, it sounds slightly odd to say that Apple is one of the winners when it said that supply chain constraints costed about $6 billion in the last quarter. But actually, Wall Street had come to fear that it might be costing about $10 billion. So Apple has emerged as one of the winners of this earnings season. We had some pretty bullish statements from General Dynamics, uh, 3M, the mining company, Free- Freeport McMorrin. But on the other side, you had companies like GE, which was hit by shortages of semiconductors, resin, parts, labor at some of its suppliers, Caterpillar, you had Mondelez, and even Tesla admitted that supply chain challenges, particularly related to semiconductors, are going to be with it for most of this year, if not into next year. Now, as you mentioned Tesla, and one of the things it's trying to do is move some of its production in-house to avoid the supply chain issues that we're talking about here. Who else is doing this? So I I spoke to a bunch of companies, a bunch of consultants, a bunch of specialists in the supply chain who said that pretty universally, they said, you know, COVID and all of the factory closures, you know, higher shipping costs, the shortages of key workers like truck drivers has really forced a rethink, a very long held belief in corporate America that what you need is just in time supply chains. There is this shift to a new mantra of just-in-case. Some people call it resilience, but those are the new slogans that are gaining ground in corporate America right now as a result of these really quite long-lasting disruptions. Andrew Edgecliffe-Johnson is the FT's U.S. business editor. U.S. and U.K. lawmakers are ready to hit Russia with sanctions if it invades Ukraine. Meanwhile, Vladimir Putin is continuing to build up Russian forces at the border with Ukraine, according to U.S. defense officials. Now, some see this as high-stakes brinkmanship. But if Russia does invade, there are several routes it could take. And one is right through the city of Mariupol in southeast Ukraine. It's home to about half a million people. And the FT's Europe editor, Ben Hall, went there recently to speak to some of them. He joins me now to talk about what he found. Hi, Ben. Hello. 
So Ben, this must have been quite a trip. Uh, can you paint me a picture of what the city is like? You know, wh- what did you see? Well, the, the picture that you would get is an unmissable picture is of these two hulking steelworks, which are some of the biggest steelworks in the, the whole of Europe, actually. They employ tens of thousands of people. You can smell the coal uh, in the air, the coal burning in the air. This is not a wealthy city, but people were going around ordinary business. It did feel like life was carrying on as normal as it is in most of Ukraine. And the the people of Mariupol, I understand that they're familiar with war and conflict, right? People in Mariupol, like a lot of Ukrainians, have been living with war uh, since 2014. They saw Russia carve off the, the Crimean Peninsula and then instigate this separatist uprising in the Donbass region, of which uh, Mariupol is part, although is not actually part of the occupied region. It's just about 20, 30 kilometers away from that. So they they have lived with this reality of fighting, and there was some pretty brutal uh, experiences for that city uh, in the fighting in, in 2014, 2015, including one very famous episode where the city was shelled uh, by a bomb, you know, barrage of rockets and, and 30 civilians were killed. So how are they feeling now, Ben? You know, who did you talk to when you were there? Well, we met uh, military officers. uh, We met local residents. We met uh, the mayor. Nearly everybody that we spoke to just uh, struggles to imagine a really large scale invasion happening. They've been at war for some time, so they don't, they're not alarmed by the, the, you know, the idea of necessarily by by some kind of escalation. The second thing is that many Ukrainians think that they are much better placed this time to withstand a Russian onslaught. Their army is stronger. And many Ukrainians are prepared to take up weapons and to fight. So there's a sort of element of defiance, uh, certainly amongst those Ukrainians who are very supportive of, of Kiev, amongst the residents who are Russian-speaking, who are suspicious about Kiev's motives. They are more inclined to believe Russian propaganda, Russian public television, which they can get there, and to believe those kind of narratives. So there's, there are definitely different views within that city. And is there tension between these two groups of people? There doesn't seem to be a lot of what you might call kind of community tension between these different groups. Um, we were really struck by the fact that I, I refer to a bombardment that killed 30, 30 people in 2015. And there was a young couple who said they thought that the Ukrainian authorities were responsible for this rocket attack. And literally, we turned around and there was another guy standing a few meters away and he had completely the opposite view. They both lived in the in the same area and yet they had very different interpretations of who was responsible for this and what lay behind that atrocity. And that, in a way, was, was really quite sort of shocking to see. I do think the city has become more Ukrainian over recent years and less pro-Russian. So maybe the kind of pro-Ukrainian sentiment is more dominant there now than it was. So is there an economic or strategic value to the city, to, to either Ukraine or Russia? Is, is there a reason Russia would want to take Mariupol? Well, the two steel mills are a very important part of Ukrainian industry, and steel um, is one of Ukraine's big um, exports, a big foreign exchange earner. So clearly, if the Russians were to take the city and take control of the city, then they could take control of those steel works. 
and deprive Ukraine of that earnings. Um, they could take control of the port. So they could stop the steel getting out. They, the port is also used for um, exporting commodities, particularly grain. So it's an outlet to the rest of the world. And one of the possible scenarios, one of the possible intentions of Vladimir Putin is to annex the south of the country and essentially to hobble Ukraine commercially by depriving it of access to the sea. So, Ben, after visiting Mariupol, is there a sort of takeaway you have? Do you feel like you have more of an insight into the larger geopolitical moment that we're in right now? Well, only that I think Ukrainians are still very unsure about uh, what's going to happen. They absolutely buy the argument of Vladimir Putin is perfectly capable of, an, in fact, intent on wanting to destabilize their country and will try to do it in all sorts of different ways, provocations, false flag operations, cyber attacks. But the idea of a full-blown invasion really baffles Ukrainians. They don't really understand why he would need to do that, why he would take such a risk, because so many Ukrainians would be prepared to resist. Um, the Ukrainian army is stronger, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a bit of a kind of phony war sort of atmosphere uh, in Ukraine generally at the moment. Um, and the government itself in Ukraine is playing down uh, the threat of a very big offensive because they feel that it's precisely that prospect or that, you know, if people start to take that on board, then that will sow panic in the population, it will disrupt the economy. And those are very much the things that, that Putin wants. Ben Hall is the FT's Europe editor. Thanks, Ben. You're very welcome. Before we go, Europe's biggest holiday company is making a bold move. TUI is raising a 500 million euro fund from institutional investors. They want to finance new hotels. This will be the first in a series of funds that TUI will raise. The company has a record level of debt after the pandemic. It had to ground its aircraft, dock its ships, and close hundreds of hotels. But travel restrictions are easing, and the company is expecting a rush of bookings in the coming days. So it says the funds will help the company return to growth. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com.